What's up, Bikeroomer fans? If you've been trying to figure out sports nutrition and how the right supplements, timing, and ingredients can help you ride faster, farther, and longer, and then recover stronger, this episode is for you. My guest is Dr. Luke Bucci, formerly with Weeder Sports and now Chief Science Officer for First Endurance, a sports nutrition brand focused on fueling and improving endurance athletes. Health, fitness, and nutrition are big passions of mine, and I do a lot of personal research on ways to get stronger, faster, and healthier. So we geek out pretty hard in this one and dive really deep. Even if you think you know how to properly fuel, my hunch is you'll learn some things from this episode. I know I did. We talk about types of carbohydrate and protein, timing and quantity, caffeine dosing, and even why they use certain ingredients but not others, the pros and cons of some popular supplements, and why they've switched up the formula for some of their products in recent years. Whether you're trying to optimize your race performance or just ride a little faster and farther, this one's packed full of useful takeaways. Please welcome Dr. Luke Bucci. Hey Luke, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Well, thanks, Tyler. I'm actually thrilled to be here. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I hope so. I certainly have a lot of questions for you. I probably did more research on this and and just, you know, like literally decades of research just because I've been interested in this subject matter for so long. But I have a longer list of questions for you than I have for any other guests so far on this show. So I figured a fun place to start is talking about the products and the ingredients and, and things like that. And then I have kind of like some more top level general questions that we'll wrap up with that I think will kind of help tie it together for people and and answer some just general questions of like, you know, do I really need all this stuff type curiosities at the end of the show? And, you know, just so people know, like, yeah, we're going to be talking about first endurance products because that's who you work for and who you formulate for. But I try to ask a lot of questions that are more just general, right? Like applies top level across any sort of sports nutrition. So. This is not sponsored by First Nutrition. I'm not promoting your products in particular, although I do like them. But yeah, it was just a good opportunity to talk to somebody that seems to know what they're doing here. So with all of that said, I figure we'll just kind of go in order with pre-race and then during and then recovery since you guys make all of the products. And so yeah, pre-race. Yeah, I think it's funny because my son's of the age where all of his friends are working out and they're like, thankfully not him, but like literally all of them are talking about like, oh, pre-workout, man, I got to have my pre-workout. And, you know, it it has such a a, a funny and negative connotation, I think, for anybody who's not trying to lift and get swole. So what's, first of all, like, what's the difference between like a pre-workout that a bodybuilder or a teenager might use and a pre-race that you guys make or for an endurance athlete? Oh, good, 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 good question, because I used to work for Weeder Nutrition, and that was all about <laughs> bodybuilding, and my background was really in the endurance exercises first, and now that's where I am and loving it. So a pre-race is a lot different for a, a long-duration endurance kind of exercise. Caffeine is still the king, though, and it always will be because there's just tons and tons and tons of human studies, and uh, we picked a dose that's right there where it, the, the studies are excellent in terms of doing everything you want from caffeine, which is keeping your mental head in the game, simply put. Also, just to burn more fat and carbs, too, and also to wake up your body and your brain. So that's always the basis of, of any kind of, of pre-workout, in this case, a pre-race type of supplement. So we have a three milligram per kilogram dose to get techie on it, and that's around 200 milligrams, it is 200 milligrams per serving. We have a powder, and actually this one tastes pretty good. 
our previous one tasted okay. So when I was uh, tasked to um, redesign it, it was real simple. Um, I had been sitting on, uh, on a formula for a long time because there's been a plethora of new evidence. We have several different other things that I think are also important. We do have taurine, which is an intracellular buffer, and it's at another clinically studied dose. We always try to shoot for clinically studied doses, unless uh, in a combo, sometimes you can get by with less because the body handles things better when they're in combinations, and nobody studies that per se. But anyway, uh, we also have a tart cherry extract that's been clinically tested in endurance performance and shown to have benefits at the same dose. We also use a nitric oxide booster that's a little different from everything out there. I've had my eye on nitric oxide for a long time. I'm not a fan of nitrates and nitrites. If we're trying to get rid of them in our uh, food preservatives, then why are we taking gobs of them? Yeah, they naturally occur, but uh, what I chose was called Nitrosagene. It's a branded product from Nutrition 21, and that has a, an extensive amount of human clinical studies on it also. It works differently than nitrates and nitrites. It actually is encapsulating arginine, what your body's precursor for nitric oxide is, in a way that makes it more available to the enzyme that makes nitric oxide. So that's the simplest way I can put it. And what's the benefit of that for people like who have no idea what we're talking about so far? Nitric oxide um, relaxes your blood vessels. And no, that doesn't relax your performance, quite the opposite. It improves blood flow. And when you're exercising, you want to have more blood flow, and that's what it does. So it does it in a way that is working within the body's limits so that you get the maximum benefit without uh, having to get rid of all this nitrate and nitrite compounds that, that turn into free radicals that are actually counterproductive later on. So that's why we, I chose that one, because nitrosagene does what we want to get from nitric oxide, which is improved circulation. And it also thus helps your performance. And even better, unlike nitrates and nitrites, the nitrosagene being an arginine-based compound, it actually lasts longer so you can still get the benefits from it in a few, several, several hours instead of just a boom, one and done. So that's why I think it's a, a wonderful thing to do. So for somebody who's like, like, oh, you know, it just sounds like a chemical, sounds like this, you know, like I just like beet juice, right? Like beets are supposed to do the same thing. So why not just put like a beet juice powder in there? Patents. <laughs> to, to put bluntly. <laughs> somebody patented beet juice? <laughs> Oh my gosh, yes. And uh, it's a big controversy. I'll just say that, but we're not touching in anything that has uh, patent controversies. Uh, we definitely don't want to uh, step on those kind of toes, even if they're steppable, let's say. <laughs> uh, is, I was like joking when I said that, but so somebody actually patented beet juice for what? For nutritional performance supplements or? Uh, yep. <laughs> and any any other food that has nitrates or nitrites in it. That's crazy. So let's, uh, I'm curious, because like, I agree, like with the nitrates and nitrites, right? Like that's the first thing I check on meat packages when I'm buying them. So we buy all of our meat from the farmer's market. And, you know, like even then when they don't add that stuff, it's, it's, you always have that little disclaimer, you know, like preserved with, uh, what is it? Celery salt, which may contain naturally occurring nitrates or nitrites. I forget which one, but like, what's the actual difference? Why is one bad and one okay? Uh, what, what do you mean by one bad and well, one like okay? Well, like why is why are nitrites or nitrates bad, but then the arginine, you know, the precursors that you guys include 
okay. Oh, okay. Uh, that's a good question because um, nitrates and nitrites have plenty of evidence to show that they do help all kinds of exercise performance uh, for the short term, at least. But they also have a, they have a double double-edged sword. They they cause peroxynitrite free radicals, which are, are kind of nasty. We don't hear much about them because it's really a mess to figure out that chemistry. They kind of stick in everything make these weird adduct or, or add-ons to compounds that are normally in your blood vessels, for example, and it kind of creates a general low-grade inflammation, which is why we're trying to get rid of them in our, in our food as food preservatives everywhere. So they're really, they can become ugly. Like carcinogenic, I think, right? Like, isn't that what's always in the headlines and stuff? There is that. Um, that's been known for a long time, that, but that has to get where stomach acid is. So, of course, you're swallowing these things, and that's exactly where it is. Now, in something like a beet juice or, or other food derivatives, there are other compounds that help reduce that. But, um, you know, why do one step forward and one step back when you can just take two steps forward? I like that analogy. Okay, there's one other ingredient. Well, one you kind of glossed over. I was curious about the, the tart cherry stuff. And then there's one other one in there, theobromine, which I think is also a constituent of chocolate, right, or cocoa. Yep, yep. It's a cacao extract, so it has a tiny amount of caffeine, but a big whack of, of theobromine, which is a it's a caffeine wannabe, but it actually is what I call the great ameliorator, if if I could say that, because what it does is it helps keep your mood calm. So just like your chocolate is very ah satisfying, and that helps your brain not panic. It helps your brain ameliorate or buffer the um, stimulating effects of caffeine so you don't get too jazzed up, but you still have the, the benefits of caffeine physiologically for exercise. It also has polyphenols, which is what's also in the tart cherry, different kinds. And these are, how do I say this simply? These are compounds that do a lot of things in the body and it's all good for exercise. They turn on a lot of circulation things going on in, in your blood vessels. They also are good antioxidants, but not so good that they wreck your, your antioxidant status. They just do a plethora of these signaling things for your energy metabolism as well. But it's really um, the anti-inflammatory part that keeps your blood vessels and your muscles working longer. And uh, that's also been shown well in some, a lot of exercise studies. Okay, I've got a few questions about the caffeine. So you mentioned a second ago that there was a, it was like a something kilograms or milligrams per kilogram dosage. But it, to me, that sounds like you figured it out for a certain body weight, but like uh, there's nothing on your label or instructions that says like for, you know, this weight person use this much. It's just take a scoop or two scoops and here's your dose. Is it, should it be different? It's like, you know, because I mean, some riders are 120 pounds and I'm, you know, 190. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Dose response is what it is, and that, that's kind of my bag when I design things that most people don't look at. But you look at the <laughs> literature. right? Yeah, right, exactly. But, uh, well, I'm one of those. So yeah. you have to, to get it right. And to get it right for everybody at, at a single dose per serving, you look at the literature on caffeine, and all these studies are using people in the age range, or sorry, the weight range that you just said in the, the 100 to 200 pound range. And that dose of three milligram per kilogram 
which is 200 milligrams for an average one, you know, 70 kilo, 150 pound person, that works. And so do lower doses and so do higher doses. Higher doses, of course, work a little longer and stronger, but they have some uh, mental effects that we don't want to do, overstimulation, for example. So that's a sweet spot dose. It should work for people that are larger, and it definitely works for anybody that's 150 pounds or less. We, we also find that most of our, our users actually adjust the dosage to their needs. Plus, we also pick that dose, importantly, to start you off so your body is, is uh, generating enough energy and your mind is in good shape. So you can use caffeine later in the race or event, especially if you're going two, three, four plus hours. You could also take a pre-race again later in the race to at every every two or three hours or whatever you feel works for you. But telling people to individualize something is, is something you really can't put in stone or put out in writing because everybody is a little different. So we we hope that people are in individualizing each product, uh, those little tweaks. But we have to start somewhere, and a per serving basis should work for just about everybody. So the ideal, it sounds like, is, you know, like if I wanted to do the math and figure it out, it sounds like I might actually be using more than one scoop, but, you know, three milligrams caffeine per kilogram of body weight. Yep, that's getting, it means you might need about one and a third amount to reach that three milligram per kilogram. Seems like a lot, just because, because my next question was like, I really enjoy my coffee in the morning, right? And I drink probably half a pot of coffee every morning. So I'm already getting, you know, 150, 200, maybe more, I'm guessing, milligrams of caffeine. Like, I really kind of don't want to dump another 200 plus milligrams on top of that if I'm going out for like a mid-morning ride. Is there, like, why not make a caffeine-free version or for those of us who enjoy coffee? Well, we thought about that, and that just might happen any moment. (laughs) We haven't uh, thrown that out the window yet, and that's the reason why. And that's another reason why we picked the three milligram per kilogram dose. If you're adding one or 200 milligrams of caffeine in an hour or so ahead of that or right with it, you're still not um, getting too high where your brain starts to to fire a little too much. And, And it still has the same exercise enhancement effects. So we, that's why we didn't go higher on the caffeine dose because uh, there's people that use ca- caffeine throughout the day before a race and even during the race. So we gave, gave it that kind of middle-of-the-road dose that's satisfying everybody and not going to mess anyone up, to put it simply. Yeah. What, what is an upper limit? Like, hey, maybe not just all at once, right? But if I were going to do like a 12-hour race or, you know, literally just go ride all day, you know, go for like a seven or eight hour ride. Like, is there a cap on how many servings I should actually take in a single day? Yes, there is actually, because uh, caffeine comes and goes pretty quick, but it breaks down into a compound called paraxanthine and it has the same effects as caffeine. And that takes longer to get rid of. Then you have a lot of genetic issues. Some people get rid of it quickly. Some people don't. So in a lot of people, it actually builds up, and that's when it gets to be kind of wonky for them, and you get all these side effects you don't want. We can't predict who's going to have those genetic variations. So uh, we've figured out that about a serving of pre-race every hour can keep pretty much everyone in the zone of getting the maximum benefit from caffeine. 
and not get into any of the problems if you have those genetic variations where you can't get rid of it quickly enough. Right on. All right, there's three other ingredients that are not in your product that I was curious, like why not and what you think of them. So the first is beta alanine, which I think is pretty popular in the endurance circuit. It's supposed to reduce muscle fatigue. Why not include that one? It's already in our Optogen HP adaptogenic formula. And with beta alanine, it doesn't work immediately. You take an acute dose and then go exercise, it's not going to do what you want it to do. It's just not getting into the cell and, and doing what it does, which is make a dipeptide called carnosine. It's the, how the, your body makes this stuff. And that's a, a acid buffer. And that takes time for your body to generate the, the synthesis of carnosine from the beta alanine. So with Optogen, you're supposed to take it every day for long time periods. That's how you'd use beta alanine. So again, people aren't reading the material <laughs> methods in the studies. You know, I read far enough to see that you should start the pre-race with a half dose. And that's what I did uh, last week when I tried it out before a ride. And I felt great for the ride. I actually rode really hard. But uh, I didn't read a little bit further to say where it says, you know, mix with the sports drink. Because I, personally, I don't think it tastes that great. I was like, oh, man. And then I read it and I'm like, oh, yeah, I should have mixed it. But anyway. So the next one I was curious about was uh, betaine, betaine. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. B-E-T-A-I-N-E. Oh, I've heard it pronounced all kinds of ways. It's betaine, betaine. I don't really know how to pronounce it because uh, I mean, the people that research it are fighting over that. But uh, I don't think that works as well as anything else that we have in, in pre-race. And uh, it just is take, you need a big, big dose. And that's another issue. You're, you're going to, it, that causes all, all sorts of problems, cost, especially of a bigger serving size. And it doesn't taste bad, but it's just kind of a little bitter as well. And the, the most common form is called betaine or betaine hydrochloride. So it does uh, make your stomach more acidic. And we don't really want to make it more acidic throughout the race that can cause GI upset. So that's why we don't use it. Okay. And the last one is citrulline, which I think has a decent amount of research behind it, you know, kind of improving subjective feelings of, you know, reduced fatigue and improving concentration, especially during really long events. Yes, we actually use that in the, the former pre-race formula. That was the main ingredient was citrulline malate. And citrulline is the breakdown product of arginine. And what it does is it backs up arginine from being broken down when you add that much amount in the body so that is more is used for nitric oxide synthesis. Well, well, since we have something that's even better at making nitric oxide, it's not a backdoor way. It's, a, it's the right way to do it. We didn't need the citrulline anymore. Plus, you had to have a pretty good whack of it, at least three grams or so. And that didn't help the flavor at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think seen a lot of things with the, the dosages, you know, even up to like eight grams, which is a lot. And I think it is pretty expensive as well, if I'm not mistaken. This Bike Rumor podcast episode is brought to you by The Pros Closet. Spring is the perfect time to upgrade your ride. From top brands to niche names, TPC has a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes for every discipline. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected tested, and serviced by expert mechanics. And every bike includes risk-free 30-day returns. Want to save 40 bucks? Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over 200 All right, yeah, so that was all my questions about pre-race. So let's move on to the during. You guys have 
you've had your EFS sports drink mix for quite some time. The latest version is the EFS Pro, which as far as I can tell, it just adds the GABA or is there something else different about it? Oh, it also has uh, cyclic cluster dextrins or CCDs, which is that branch chain carbohydrate that is, um, uh, we, I really like that. It, it's actually empties the stomach faster. It gets broken down into glucose and improves blood sugar levels, glucose faster, but it is rather expensive. So that we had added that to EFS to make EFS pro and that's why we call it pro. It's actually a better way to keep your carbs getting into your bloodstream and muscles. And it also has human studies and exercise performance and shown that it can improve that. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm going to kind of go off on like a little string of things about the sugars and stuff. But that one is, so you call it a cyclic cluster dextrin and it comes from amylopectin, right? Which I, I think probably comes from corn. And maltodextrin comes from corn and pretty much every source of fructose and glucose these days comes from corn. So like at the end of the day, how much does it really matter what the source is in terms of, you know, like why is a clustered dextrin better than maltodextrin, which is, you know, a chain of glucose molecules? It is because it's a different structure. Your regular maltodextrin is a single long chain of glucose and your, your body has to kind of unzip it, so to speak, whereas the cyclic cluster dextrins are a little shorter and they are more quickly emptied from the stomach and also the enzymes in your gut are more quickly converting it into glucose. That has turned out to be important when you're longer into a race, a long race, where your GI stress may be a, a big issue. So you have less GI stress with the CCD EFS Pro formula. And I think that's the most important benefit. It does have the, those advantages over the, the maltodextrin and the sugars themselves, that it is more um, palatable, more, more um, less GI trouble, and it does get your, keep your blood glucose up as, as well as or better than anything else. The GI issue, is it something about the chemistry of sugars that causes that or is it a molarity thing where it just sloshes around because there's you know like when I, I, what is it um a couple other brands i won't name them because i think they're good products too so i'm not trying to denigrate anybody's products but you know there's a couple in particular that came out similar time frames that the, the molarity of the products was a big talking point for them and how quickly it would empty from the stomach but they were you know essentially glucose you know glucose and sucrose i think yeah, the osmolality, osmolarity. It, that's the word I was looking for. That is a big issue, and that's where the CCD excels. It has a, it's low, it's very low osmolality. So your body just says, "Okay, this goes, this goes out of the stomach right now. It's not holding anything up, and it does it better than glucose or your regular long chain starch like maltodextrins. Even if maltodextrins are, are hydrolyzed or cut into small pieces, that does help them." with their osmolality and stomach emptying. But uh, CCD has structure is unique and, and it holds water better. So it just gets boom, right into the small intestine and ready to be digested very quickly. So it gives an edge. It gives an edge. The CCD gives an edge. Okay. So does that, I think, I forget what the sugar count, you can, so for like a given serving, like how many grams of sugar? And then is that you know, can you pack more of it in because it empties faster or is it just simply that it empties faster? Well, both actually, if it empties faster, you can pack more carbs in over time. 
And we're seeing the trend of getting more and more and more carbs per hour in, into yourself so you can perform faster, better, stronger, longer. That's where you got to be very careful to train your gut, and we're working on, on that aspect as well. So you'll see some more from us on that, that whole issue. It can be done, but you have to train your gut. You can't just start it the first time. Uh, you will be um, <laughs> DFA for sure. <laughs> What's the rate limiter then? Is it getting it through the stomach or is it actually absorbing it once it's into the gut? It's an all of the above thing. The first thing is getting it out of the stomach so you don't have a stomach sloshing problem and you don't feel bloated and burp and all that kind of nonsense. Then the next step is to get it into the gut. And that's, the I think, the real crucial area because the gut is trainable and every, every endurance rider out there has trained it to take in more carbs than Joe Blow off the street. But by far, it's amazing how much you can suck up with your gut. Remember, your gut has an area the size of a football field of cells just hungry and ready to gobble things up. So how do you train it? Just taking more carbs on a, on, on a low, uh, low outcome consequence day? At just regular training. You just take more carbs on a, a graded upward level and you'll find out real quick what you can handle and not handle. We've written a blog on that somewhere on our website, I think last year. So you're welcome to check that out. But uh, it, there are little equations, and we, we kind of had a chart per body weight to show how much carbs you can take without um, getting those GI side effects. So that's the real issue. You're trying to get it into the gut. Once it's in the gut, it's pretty easily disseminated into circulation. The muscles are grabbing it. But in the meantime, a lot of it's hanging out in the gut. And the more you um, overdo it, the, the more hangs out in your gut. So you actually gain some weight and then you gain a lot of GI stress as well. And that is one of the major determinants of how far you can go and how fast you can go by, by far. It's one of the, the top things that are impeding people's exercise performance. So it's, uh, again, that's, I think, pretty dependent on body weight. So if you just take 100 grams an hour right off the bat, you're going to be um, <laughs> you're going to be puking on the side of the road pretty quick. And does that include like food or gels or chews or any of that stuff too? Or are we talking about just calories from drinks? Oh, that's a, that's all calories, anything. And food is different because it's usually emptied slower from the stomach, and it takes longer time to digest. So you, you kind of I kind of like to think of fueling as, okay, what's the absolute ideal best way you can fuel yourself? Well, it'd be IVing all the stuff that your <laughs> muscles are using. And there have been studies like that, and they compare it to the oral stuff. And it's really hard to get to that IV nirvana. Plus, you have all this uh, pumps and things dragging around. That's not, not going to work in a real-life situation. But that's what you're trying to do, get a steady influx of as much as you can without hanging around in your gut and messing up your GI tolerance. And that changes the longer the race goes. Your, your gut gets what's called ischemic. In other words, the blood is going to your muscles and not so much to your gut and not so much to your brain either so that uh, it slows down. Can't absorb as much when it doesn't have the blood supply. You don't get it back into the bloodstream like you did in the first hour. So you got to be really cognizant that... Um, Trying to get more in at first it looks kind of easy, but then all of a sudden it's not working. 
so there's still some adjustments going on with, with all of that, how much per hour and when in the race and how long the race is, and um, is it anaerobic parts to it and, and strictly aerobic, blah, 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 blah. It gets complicated. But really, the whole goal is to get it out of the stomach as fast as you can and then get it digested and absorbed into the gut as fast as you can. Yeah. How much of this is an issue for like just normal rides, right? Like most of the time I'm out riding with friends, we're easily 80% of the ride is zone two, right? Like casual conversational, you know, like we're moving, but conversational pace, right? Does it even matter? Or is it like when you start running into issues with enough blood going to the digestive system to help process and absorb everything? Are you talking about more like race pace and zone four, zone five type stuff? Oh, yeah. I think we're talking more about race pace. Uh, we're talking about wanting to win and having that edge where everybody is just kind of gurgling with their gut and not feeling right or may have to take a potty break or something and <laughs> lose time. We're trying to give you every option to be better than the next person and better than your best. That's our goal. And yes, it, it's you're going to not need to go that that crazy, and you may not notice a big difference if you're down around you know, the 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 lesser aerobic performance um, amounts. But uh, if you're really pushing it and and you are under a very intense stress, you're thinking about I don't know if I can do this. This is killing me. Uh, that's what we're shooting for: is getting you past those things and keeping your brain and muscles fueled. All right. On. Well, speaking of the brain. Two of the ingredients in there that I, I think are pretty interesting are the GABA and the theanine. Coincidentally, I take, I'll cycle on and off, you know, a couple of weeks on, a couple of weeks off, but I'll take those before bed along with magnesium. And um, I think it just kind of helps reset the mind, calm my mind, you know, because I tend to have rabbits running around in there most nights. And I think it works. I, you know, sometimes I get some pretty vivid dreams, you know, but I like those. And I think on the days where I've used your product, especially like on the longer days, I think it sort of tricks you into not feeling like you're suffering a little bit. But um, you talk about those too, because I don't know, you know, a lot of people probably aren't super familiar with them. And Yeah, I have a long history with theanine back into the 90s. And uh, a real quick story that I was in a patent lawsuit where <laughs> I'll just leave it. I had 13 lawyers grilling me for weeks and I started using theanine and well, we didn't lose. You may, you, you, it's okay if you don't win, but just don't lose. So we actually <laughs> did win. So that got me to thinking, okay, this stuff really does work. But also with both the GABA, which we use the Pharma GABA version, which is made by lactobacillus. It's made by natural enzymes commercially. Most other GABA is synthesized. And this might get a little mind-bending or kind of woo-woo, but we're getting into molecular conformations, which means uh, that's an organic chemistry thing, so I won't bore you with it. But really, the shape of the molecule is super important in how it fits into the receptors to get into your gut and into your brain. Everything gets into the gut pretty well, but uh, then the brain picks what it's looking for, for both theanine and GABA. So if you make it from enzymes, and the sun theanine that we use is, again, made from um, lactobacilli or bacteria that are friendly. It's a different charge structure and its shape than the synthetic ones, which is kind of a 50-50 mix of whatever bends and twists it wants to have in the molecule. More than that, it's like several twists. And some of those, your body doesn't recognize. It just like, it's like a key with a few teeth missing. It's not going to go in the lock and turn. 
So we want to make sure that key goes in your lock and turns so you get the full effect. And that's why we have lower doses because we don't need the massive doses to try to get enough of the wrong confirmations onto your brain receptors, for example. So uh, that might be a little too techy, but uh, no. we go to that kind of length. Yeah, no, I like it. So what's, is it, I mean, how, like, how do they get across the blood-brain barrier? Because isn't that sort of keeping all that kind of stuff out or, or trying to? Uh, thinning gets across the blood-brain barrier, no problem. It's a glutamine derivative. So it acts, so the body says, oh, this is, okay, this is glutamine, and it goes right into the brain and hits the receptors there and does its thing. GABA and pharmagaba is a completely different story. It does not get into the brain. If you give massive doses, you can sneak a little bit in, but if it's going to be the wrong confirmation and not work. Instead, it actually, you have a lot of it in your gut, and when you're under stress, GABA is used for your gut to signal your brain that we're in trouble or we're happy. And for GABA, it signals your brain we're happy. And you don't need a whole lot because it gets really weird how GABA works like that. But it's a gut-brain connection thing is the simplest way I can say it. And everybody's missing that. Uh, everybody's thinking, oh, yeah, GABA has to get in the brain to make, uh, you know, hit the GABA receptors and like Valium does, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, 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 no. It is telling your, your gut to tell your brain, hey, we're doing fine. In fact, we want you to um, be happy and have good mental processes. So it does the same basic things as theanine does, which is weird. It's calm but alert. So you have more attention, more focus, and you're not stressed out, spazzed out. You're not hectic. You're not, not scrambling. But again, we look at the dose response and pick the right amount of theanine to keep your blood level in that sweet spot zone for, the, for the, the length of the race. And that's something that a lot of people misinterpret from literature. You pick a big dose, it's going to work. It's got to get in and all that. No, it can, it can backfire on you too. And that's what a lot of people don't understand about our bodies. Our bodies are like zones. Uh, they don't like not enough. They don't like too much. They want the Goldilocks syndrome, so to speak. So is there a chance with this one, you know, again, like if you're going out for like a five, six hour ride and you're drinking bottle after bottle of this, that you might start to get too much? No, no. We make sure of that because your body, uh, look at the absorption curves and look at uh, repeated uptake too, which there's not as many of those studies. So we make sure that you're in that blood level that causes the right changes in brain alpha and beta waves, for example, for theanine. And also, the, the, what works in the literature for GABA, pharma GABA itself, and it's a lot lower than synthetic GABA studies. So I think everybody's kind of um, chasing the wrong horse there. Okay. So uh, this is maybe not a question that applies to everybody, but <laughs> what I like to do or, or end up doing is, you know, like I usually will mix up two bottles for almost every ride I do, and then I may not finish it. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what's the shelf life on these kind of premium, you know, GABA theanine ingredients and stuff. If I um, finish a ride with a bottle left or half a bottle, throw it in the fridge, come back two, three days later, top it off and head back out. Is it, is it degrading or am I okay? Well, it's not going to degrade by itself under those conditions. But if you've contaminated with any microbes at all, they're going to have a field day because they have fuel and they have a few amino acids so they can make protein. Yay them. 
that's the issue. So we can't control that. So we kind of say, please don't do that because we don't know if um, even just a little droplet that bounces off your hand can put enough microbes in to even in a refrigerator start messing messing up the the whole the whole works. Mm. That's uh, it's uh, not uh, not worth the the risk. If you no aseptic technique and that kind of stuff. No, in other words, you work in a lab and you know how to mix your stuff without introducing too many bugs. And fungi are probably bigger issue than the bacteria because they come out of the air. So, so I get some Last of Us. Uh. <laughs> yeah, just I, I, you know, drink it for breakfast the next day. That kind of stuff. It's like juice, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but I mean, and I try and keep my bottles pretty clean, but you know, there's there's just no way to keep cycling water bottles totally clean. So. Yeah, clean and sterile are two different things, and they're not the same. <laughs> All right. Well, that is um, that's a lot for during. So my last category of nutrition I'm going to talk about because you guys make a lot of other products, but I think the core ones most people are looking at like pre, during, post, and you know, recovery is a big one. I sort of want to go back in time for a second here and give some credit to Endurox. I think anybody in their you know. 40s or 50s probably remember that as being like the first mainstream endurance nutrition brand that really just promoted this recovery window, you know, and especially like a four to one ratio. But there was, you know, before then, I don't think anybody really talked about like you need to get X amount into you in these ratios, you know, within like a 20, 30 minute window to maximize recovery. And nowadays, I think a lot of that is just sort of accepted as fact, even though, you know, we see the ratios between protein and carbs vary from brand to brand. But I think most of them are anywhere from two to one to four to one nowadays. You guys are three to one, roughly, on your recovery product. So, you know, I certainly bought into that for many, many years. And I still have a recovery drink or snack after most rides, especially the hard ones. I've recently heard that in well-trained athletes that the timing of that protein intake isn't really so important, at least not as important as kind of been led to believe that you know, as long as your total daily protein intake is high enough, you're basically going to recover and build muscle just fine, regardless of when you ingest it. I was curious what your thoughts are on that. That was a lot. <laughs> yeah, you, you know what you're talking about there. So that's good. And I do remember Endurox too. I'm, I'm past that age. But yeah, it was a good try. But it, it, I think they were really using an adaptogenic principle acutely, and that never really works well. What, what do you mean by that? Well, that, that's where I, that's what I learned about adaptogens long ago is that you need to take them consistently, and they have so many different things in them that signal your body like your body normally signals everything: uh, blood flow, your your stomach emptying, your brain, your muscles, um, pretty much everything. Your body has little signals, and these adaptogens are mildly pushing them back to what's called homeostasis, which means normality and health. And if anything is not working, it has the extra compounds to make your body go back to normal faster and easier. But it takes time to get those levels up so your body is not getting rid of them immediately. And you need to take the right amount so you don't put too much in the body goes, eh, we aren't supposed to have this, get it rid of it. And then it amps up getting rid of it forever and ever. So was there an adaptogenic ingredient in there then? Because I don't remember the whole formula. Yeah, I think it was a leuterococcus. I could be way wrong on that, but uh, that's where it really kind of got its start. And that's where optogen product comes into play. But it's better if you, for, but getting back to the um, 
recovery part, that's when your signaling goes absolutely crazy. When as soon as you stop exercising, your body's like, ah, it's out of, it's like help. You know, everything's going crazy. Everything's breaking down. We got to fix stuff. And uh, that means that you do need some protein right away after that because the amino acids have been drained to make energy. And there are also important signaling compounds to repair, too. If you have enough of them fast enough, then you can start the repair faster and, and bigger. If you have a, a higher protein intake in general than somebody else, you have a little, you start from a little bit better place, but still it's really important to get some amino acids or protein in very quickly. And not a lot, not a lot. You don't need a, a gob, you don't need a bodybuilder amount, which is not right for endurance athletes. And uh, glucose is still the king for recovery. You need the energy to recover. So if you stop intaking fuel like glucose and your body's in a panic mode trying to repair things, that's the most important thing. You need to have energy so it can start all those repair recovery processes. It's a whole different ballgame for recovery. Okay. So I think, I mean, I've got sort of one giant question that has a lot of little questions in it, but I'm trying to break this up. I, I think yours has which your recovery product is called Ultragen, if people want to check it out. The um, 20 grams of protein from whey, various whey sources, and then a little over 10 grams of combined branched-chain amino acids and glutamine, which you put it all together. Like, that's on the high side of what most endurance recovery drinks have. There's a lot of them that are 10 to 12 grams, a couple 15 grams of proteins in it, which I look at that, again, as like 190-pound person who's very active and just kind of laugh at it because it's, you know, to me, it seems like a drop in the bucket, right? Like I, I would need to take a lot of servings of that and that's stuff, all that stuff's way too expensive for me to take a lot of servings of that. Let's start with that. Like what's, why only 20 grams? Because, and the reason I'm asking that is, you know, like another stuff I've been reading and, and listening to lately suggests that really like once you're out of college age, you know, like be, you know, up until about 22, 25, generally speaking, you can kind of eat anything and your body will, has the enzymes and the systems to turn it into muscle if you are exercising. After that, your body becomes a little more specific as to what it needs. And at that point, any smaller proteins amount, anything under 40 grams per serving, per sitting, really isn't going to trigger much of an anabolic response. And so I'm curious what you think of that. And then also like, so why, if, if you agree with that, how is 20 grams in a recovery product enough? Timing is everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's the simplest explanation. And, uh, th and this goes back to my days, weeder days and, and, and dealing with the bodybuilders and massive amounts. For endurance exercise, there's different signals. And you usually have a different muscle fiber types predominant. You know, slow twitch versus fast twitch is one of those kind of issues, too. And adding in the, the free-form amino acids, the glutamine and the, the branch chains, they are major metabolic signals. They, they are not only being used for energy, but they, in so doing, they ramp up the energy pathways. So again, if you're going to be using glucose to provide the fuel for recovery, that's why it's good to have those amino acids in. And you can do that with a bunch of protein, but then you get all the other amino acids and, and they're going to have 
conflicts with the, the ones that are trying to get you to repair faster. So that's where the glutamine and branch chains came from. Plus, during exercise is a whole lot better for amino acids than before. And that's another story, but uh, <laughs> we've taken that into consideration. And that's where a lot of studies go wrong. And if they, we gave, we gave a bunch of this stuff to these people and nothing happened. Well, you gave it, you know, like an hour beforehand and then you let them run three or four hours and it's long gone. These amino acids are immediately processed into whatever the body wants. And after you stop exercising, it's less converting to glucose or fatty acids, but it's going to trigger muscle protein synthesis. So I think it is important to get in some protein quickly so that process can start from a higher level than if you didn't have the protein. And just throwing a bunch of protein in means you're, you're getting in the way of needing the glucose fuel too. So I was um, very impressed by how well Ultragen makes me recover when I'm doing rarely some very intense exercise, which is usually snow shoveling here in the winter. <laughs> and uh, it's, oh, wow, you, you, you know, A, A, B, A, B, yes, no, you try that out a few times and it's like, oh boy, I can't do without my Ultragen. That's why Ultragen's a little different. It has that kind of perfect storm of the things you need when you need it, but that timing is everything is the real key. As soon as you can afterwards, that, that's the key. So I, I want to see if I, like my takeaway on that in terms of like having more protein in is it would just sort of maybe slow down the effect that you want of trying to get the, that protein synthesis and anabolic response going. Yeah, it does. You would shunt, if you have too much protein and 20, the amount we have in ultrogen is not too much for most people. Well, what would be too uh, much? Uh, you're starting to get into that that 40, 50 gram range, that, and then that's just too much for endurance athletes. Plus, you got to remember that your gut is is at its worst. It, it's ischemic. It, it's it's slowly getting its blood supply back, and when it does, it gets a burst of free radicals that really kind of taxes it. So it's harder to for it to absorb and throw stuff into your bloodstream again. So you want to make sure you have enough so you can get as much as possible in for your amino acids, and thus pro protein is a good, good way to do that. But uh, that's why I think the free forms make a big difference. They, they go right in. You don't need to have your, your enzymes there in the amount you need with a lot of protein. And um, so it's kind of a one of those fuzzy things again where it's a little complicated, but another thing about first endurance is that the, the products are tested in the field with real people, real athletes pushing the envelope, uh, using it under real life conditions, and we monitor feedback. We obviously do surveys and questionnaires and try to figure out, okay, if people are feeling better and actually doing better for performance or recovery, then, then we'll know we're on the right track. And that way we can put together all those variables that, that are going on with your gut, your head, your, your muscles, your liver too. Don't forget the poor little liver. We get the real life, what's called, I like to call empirical evidence. What you see is what you get. So that, that goes to taste and it goes to mouthfeel. And, and you really then determine that, okay, yeah, we can use all this neat stuff, but it's like making people bloated and they're gassy and no, no way they're going to keep with that. So what do we do? Again, we, we're getting closer and closer to mimicking IV 
feeding is what I like to kind of uh, try to get to do orally. So that's, I think, a big benefit for us. So we know the formulas are working for the majority of people. You mentioned, and, and I hadn't even thought about this, but uh, you, know, you mentioned bloated and gassy. So I just want to talk about whey protein for a second, because there are times when a person has used a lot of whey protein supplements, you know, protein shakes, and it, I think it does cause a lot of gas, right? And, you know, bodybuilders joke about it, you know, how much gas they have. But you guys use whey, and I think most people consider that the gold standard in terms of amino acid profile and, and as a protein for recovery, that's it. But, you know, like, do you, do you see any issues with that in terms of digestibility or, or causing some of those issues at any amount? Well, we also use whey protein hydrolysis. We blend that in with the whey protein itself. We, we use the cross-flow microfiltered kind of whey, so it um, has not been damaged by heat. And that's what makes these proteins cause bloating and uh, stick around in the gut a little longer because they're pretty much coagulated. And you're, you need stomach acid to help break that up, and you need a bunch of um, peristalsis or, or squeezing of the gut to make these clots break up so you can absorb them. So we've, that's where the, the attention to detail really starts to win out. So we have the whey protein isolate. And then we have a protein hydrolysate, which gets in faster than any other type of protein and or amino acids. So that um, we're making digestion easier when your gut is at its worst. So what's the difference between all those and uh, like whey concentrate? Whey concentrate, it, it has little casein in it too. And casein is the most allergenic form of uh, milk proteins. And a, a good number of people have these allergic reactions that are under-recognized. And that's what causes bloating as well. So whey protein isolate is the, the purest whey out there with barely any casein at all. You know, not really not anything practical to consider. So that makes it easier to tolerate, thus easier to digest. And without it being heat processed and coagulated, which uh, the, the uh, whey protein concentrates are, uh, it, it's a different kind of whey protein. Again, it's all about that conformation that, that uh, is so important for GABA and, and, and even theanine. They're amino acids and so is protein. Also, the way I don't want to get into the whole glutamine glutamate thing, but uh, that gets into a whole f big food cooking issue and all that. But in other words, it's the best way to get the amino acids into your body after a very long, intense endurance workout. It worked in the field, and it we haven't found anything better. Let's put it that way. That's kind of the simplest way to say it. So you mentioned, um, I, I'm going to come back to protein in a second, but uh, the, the car, I'm curious about the glucose that's in it because you, you call it like an energy pathway. I've always heard and understood that the glucose in these recovery drinks is they're basically just to like trigger this massive insulin spike so that it's shuttling all this other stuff into the muscles and refilling the muscles with glucose and getting those amino acids and all that stuff in there. But is, is it that or is it something else? Uh, no, that's a good part of it. You have to have insulin to get glucose inside of cells, period. Uh, otherwise, no insulin and you, you don't really take up much glucose at all. Uh, you've been doing that, though, for whatever the length of time the exercise is. And your insulin, it's not that you run out of it, but if you give a, a spike of glucose, then you get the insulin. And the insulin is also what pushes amino acids into cells. We kind of all forget that. We think, oh, insulin, glucose, insulin, glucose. Yeah but it's also amino acids. 
and especially the the believe it or not the brass chains or the glut or glutamines which are the the, the major amino acids quantitatively uh, in your your serum in muscles so is that like once once you shove those you know let's just say the insulin's shoving those things into my muscle cells is that like literally how the muscle cells are using those to then rebuild and repair or is there some other process yes they are using uh, that energy to start a really sophisticated system of repair and recovery. You have to repair micro tears. In other words, your muscles are screaming that um, we're being torn apart here. We're, we're having breakdown of our fibers inside the muscles. Different organelles are, are being stretched and pulled and broken and there are little chunks of those floating around. So your body needs energy to, to get rid of the garbage, so to speak. And then just to put back what's there and make it better. So that's what a training effect is. That's why you have to go through misery to, to get better. About the sugar, right? Like there is, you guys have 60 grams of glucose in yours, which just seems like a lot of sugar. I mean, do we need that much? Well, yes. Uh, I was kind of, I, I joined up for a sooner, so I took a look at that and go, whoa, man, it's going to blow people's heads off and stuff. But when you are seriously worn out at the end of a, a very intense, exhaustive exercise, it is not too much. And that, that, so I had to do it to myself to, to make sure that was true. But again, that's the feedback we got from the empirical testing. And that's, I think, as or more important than all the, the human clinical studies that you get out of the literature, because those are in very specific controlled situations. And so we look at the totality of evidence. So if you give it and it works, it works. It seems like at those levels, right, like this is maybe a product for, you would only use after like super intense or super long efforts. Yeah, I think if you just um, sit in the couch and drink it all day, you're going to be fat. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yeah, just... yeah. Well, I mean, after like, you know, if you're just going out for like a, a 45 minute ride, you know, 60 minute ride, nothing crazy, like a, a one bottle ride and you're not doing like intervals or something. I mean, maybe save this for a bigger day. Yeah. I think I forgot to mention one of the important parts of why, why that much glucose and that's, that's muscle glycogen replenishment. The faster you can get glucose to the muscles when it, the muscles have depleted their glycogen or it's very low, the better. Liver glycogen is taken care of a lot by the byproducts of fatty acids and um, lactate to get it replenished. So it's easier to fix from other things, but uh, for muscle glycogen replenishment, that allows people to perform faster, sooner. In other words, uh, day, every day, every day, every day. And a lot of athletes like you know, TDF and such, they're, they're doing it every day. And they have to replenish that muscle glycogen all the way to the max. And if you start it off right after exercise, when it's really looking for it, I think that gives a much better end result for repairing your muscle glycogen. And when you have muscle as glycogen, it sends out happy signals, which means it's maintaining and repairing. I still talk about all these signaling things, which most people go, huh, what? <laughs> but uh, your, your body is very intricate. It tells itself what to do, and it uses foodstuffs and their derivatives, their breakdown products, to tell your you know dumb, blind fat and happy cells that, that don't, ha don't have a brain, you know, if they see something they need, they need to, to take it up. They need to get it. If they don't see it, they send signals saying, give me glucose or give me aminos. Yeah. And, and that's what we uh, eat a bunch of donuts, right? 
<laughs> the so I, I've got a friend. I'm just curious. Like, do you have to combine protein to get as much of a benefit? Because I got a friend that you know, after most rides, he'll just like make another bottle of sports drink real quick. So he's getting the glucose in, but not any of the amino acids or proteins and stuff. Is it is that doing anything for muscle building, or is it just going to replenish the glycogen? It'll definitely replenish the glycogen. I think that's the most important part because th- then your your muscles will have internal energy if there's not enough glucose in the blood or they can instantly use it to repair themselves. So again, obviously the glucose is the most important thing for recovery, which you see in studies over and over and over again. Now, now adding in protein and or amino acids gives you a little, little better result overall, a little faster result. Because otherwise, you're going to have to cannibalize something else in the body to supply those amino acids if you don't supply them through the, the dietary intake. So that usually means you're, you're wasting other muscles that weren't exercised as much, which is why you don't have bulging biceps in a lot of uh, endurance guys. Yeah, that or they just don't lift weights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, and the brain and the liver, they all kind of shrink if other parts of the body is like the muscles need amino acids now and a lot uh, they take the hit and then they rebuild later so yeah you can do an, your um, energy drink right after exercise and you get most of the benefits okay good to know so then i'm um, jump back to protein then if you can't do whey like if you're vegetarian vegan whatever you know pea protein is pretty popular there's brown rice protein there's i mean there's all kinds of stuff and you know my understanding is the bioavailability of these is you know, it is what it is, but also the, I think more importantly, the amino acid profile of them is not as perfectly ideal as whey protein. But I mean, do you have any thoughts on those? Or you guys, do you have like a vegan option for recovery? Uh, no, we don't. And you hit the nail on the head already. Uh, it is it is the amino acid compositions. These are not complete proteins, meaning if they were your only protein you ever ate, you'd die. But nobody does that. <laughs> So they, they, will, they will have some benefits, but they're imbalanced. They don't have everything your body wants at the same time. In the, the ratios that are nature designed to be to the best for, for making anabolism or growth or repair. If you're an adult, growth is repair. It's the same processes, exactly. Different, different level, though. I think what um, maybe people don't think about is yeah, it's like mother's milk, right? Cow's milk, right? The whole point of it that in nature was to feed this animal, whatever animal it is that just needs to grow as fast as humanly possible. And, um, yeah, so we've sort of hacked that in a way and that we keep drinking milk or whatever and taking these protein supplements so that we can grow fast, right? Or repair quickly. Yeah, yeah, exa- you hit it. That's exactly, you took the words right out of my mouth. But for humans, we have more whey in our uh, milk, mother's milk, than uh, cows. They have more casein because they are a bigger body mass than humans. So they need more bone growth quickly so they can grow linearly. And that's why we like whey better than milk itself or, or any other protein because the whey is what gets in quickly. And that kind of tells the brain that you're getting enough protein. Don't panic. You don't have to eat a horse or anything. You can just... Um, uh, get by with what we're giving you. So that's, you're exactly right. That, that again, it gets down to the details of composition in this case. You know, which amino acids, uh, are they um, congealed by heat or, or changed by heat from glutamine to glutamate? 
And that's why we throw in the, the freeform glutamine because that is your, your number one amino acid in the entire body. You cook a food, you don't get glutamine. What's the difference then? Like, I mean, I know we're not going to go start drinking mother's milk just to get more of a natural whey protein, but what is the difference between the whey protein that's in that versus like a whey isolate or a hydrolyzed? Like, how is it structurally or chemically different to where? Because I'm just going to make the assumption that the way out of a mother's mother's breast milk would be ideal for human growth. Well, that's why we like the whey protein isolate and the hydrolysates. Uh, the hydrolysates are done at low temp too with enzymes, so you're not cooking them as much. And and what happens when you heat sterilized proteins for human consumption when they're relatively pure or foods? You're damaging uh, some amino acids. You're reducing your tryptophan for sure. You're losing some serine. You're losing some of your sulfur aminos. They're converted to sulfoxides, which are anti-sulfur um, uh, aminos, like your methionines and cysteines. Uh, but more importantly, the major amino acids and proteins are glutamine and, and often asparagine, kind of the forgotten glutamine. And those have the nitrogen at both ends. And when you heat or, or, or damage the, the proteins, you turn them into the glutamate and aspartates instead of the glutamine and asparagine that your body is really wanting. So it has to grab another amino acid, grab its nitrogen, and stick it on that glutamate to make glutamine. So you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. So that's one reason we throw in the glutamine. These are really, really issues that are not well um it's hard to hard to discuss them like you're finding out right now <laughs> can't just slap that on the back of the label <laughs> no no but that, but this again that's where well yeah we have quality we have quality we have the best pro blah 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 no it, it goes beyond we have the high quality stuff it goes beyond that it goes into an understanding of what your body is doing what it wants to do what it's trying to do and, and what it's been adapted and evolved to, to do uh, we're not designed to eat cooked food but we do because it mostly works and when you're on a knife edge you want to make sure everything is going your way and and that's what happens when you're doing extreme endurance exercise you're on that knife edge any tiny difference is magnified and it becomes a real benefit all right the last one on protein is um you know i think i mean even with the way isolate is really good the hydrolyzed way is really good it's still processed and i think a lot of people, you know, myself included, are becoming more and more weary of processed foods of any kind, you know, even in our sports nutrition and stuff. But so I'm curious, have you looked at like egg white protein? Because you can literally just like freeze dry egg whites and you have a very good source of natural protein. Yeah. Yeah. Egg white has the highest um, rating. If you have, if you rate proteins for, for their amino acid availability, there's a PDCAS scale that we'll just leave it at that. It's number one, and it is a perfect food if you're a, a, a bird <laughs> embryo. <laughs> Not even an adult bird. They don't you don't see them eating eggs um, unless they're a really nasty looking bird. But anyway, egg is it has a lot of the sulfur aminos, and they oxidize very easily on uh, exposure to air too. That's even in a protein the setting. So that's why you don't see a lot of egg protein as much as you think you would if it's an ideal protein. It just, go, it just gets rancid pretty quick and tastes nasty and smells bad. So uh, that's why it, So it, it's not really ready for, for the real world. Again, um, we're using what baby mammals do. We're still mammals. We're not an avian, so we're, we're not a reptile-based 
life form. We're mammalian. Well, I guess you could say they're they're reptile based, but that's getting into semantics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that was all my questions about recovery drinks and stuff. Yeah, you know, there was one I forgot to ask earlier about the flavors, you know, which applied to any of the products, right? Like a lot of, and this is coming from me having recently read uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma, which if you haven't read it, if anybody hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. I, I can't recommend that book enough. It is, it almost makes you not want to um, buy like normal grocery store food ever again. But the one thing that stood out to me in terms of like sports products, besides the fact that corn is probably fueling all of it, is um, the flavors. And, you know, I always saw like, oh, natural flavors, you know, and, and a lot of that stuff apparently is still derived from corn. So I know there's some products out there, some brands that use, you know, basically dried fruit powders and, you know, real fruit purees and all that to flavor them. I'm curious, you know, have you guys thought about that or like what is the source of, you know, quote unquote natural flavors in most of these products? Oh, oh, yeah. I think that's our secret weapon. And when I joined First Endurance, one of the reasons I did is because they're doing it right, and especially the flavors. Yeah, you're you're into mixes and drinks and things like that, and, and it's it's Flavor City. And flavors are an opaque commercial area. In other words, it, there are, it's all a bunch of secrets. There's giant corporations in charge of giant profits. And they have wrangled the regulations to not tell you exactly what's in there because then you give away your secrets, somebody's going to rip it off and you, you crash and burn as a company. So it's really economically dry, but it's top secret. And there is a big difference between synthetic and natural flavors. There's no question. Natural flavors really do have to be extracted from whatever it is. If it's a raspberry flavor, it has to have some kind of raspberry goop in it. It can be powdered raspberry all the way to uh, specific molecules from the raspberry, but it has to be extracted. It can't be synthesized. And, and again, it goes back to the confirmation from synthetic and natural production are different uh, thing again, like it does with the, the amino acids. But um, it's really top secret. You will probably not know this, but a lot of flavors or natural flavors and that's what you list in the label. The, the, the labeling has been very loose to accommodate the industry and to protect all the trade secrets. Uh, usually, most natural flavors have something called, we call it WONF, W-O-N-F, with other natural flavors. So if you get like a raspberry flavor, it's going to have raspberry stuff in it. It might even have some uh, blueberry stuff or some other things in it from other other natural sources, fruits, or even not even fruits. Um, it really depends on the flavor profile you're looking for, what it's mixed with, which is a big difference. So there's flavors that you use in something that's fatty. There's flavors you use for something that's sweet. There's flavors you use that are, that are savory. It's a giant um, kind of, a, a, what am I trying to say? A black box. It's just a big black box, but it is a huge amount of science. It's just not let out into the academic literature. It's all inside companies' trade secrets. So if you have a manufacturer that knows what they're doing and you have somebody with that magic touch, then, then you're, you're win. And we've been very lucky to have the, the right manufacturers who, who I won't name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trade secret. Um, so why not just go to like just a straight dried fruit powder to flavor it? They're nasty. 
They just, they, <laughs> you have other compounds that are, that are taking away from the, what we like the raspberry, you get all these other bitter things in there. If you just use raspberry powder, but the essence of raspberry is not really bitter itself. So that it's better to go with a, some kind of extract of a raspberry that ha- is enriched for that raspberry flavor or an odor compound. And there's odor, not just taste. It, it's more than just what your tongue is telling your brain. Your nose is a big part of flavor and, and taste and probably a bigger part, actually. It's kind of magic. I hate to say it, but it's kind of magic. And you have to have somebody that's been doing it and knows, knows how to tweak things. It's a lot of bench work, a whole bunch of bench work. But um, once you get it, it's it's right. And and we opt for uh, not overdoing the flavor. So you're not just, oh, get the flavor fatigue thing. Like, oh, this is like too raspberry. I'm sick and tired of raspberry. I never want to touch a raspberry in my life. And I can't take your stuff because that's all I get. I ooze raspberry from my pores, that kind of stuff. Raspberry is a tough one, too. I, I mean, I've been in the sports nutrition thing and, and raspberry is a really hard flavor to get right without it being weird well we don't have it and, and, and uh, <laughs> that's you're right that's that's why it's it's it tastes like a lot of other things um in fact everything fruity kind of ends up tasting like fruit punch <laughs> yeah <laughs> which pretty we do. much so i, I want to just so we don't lose people here i just kind of want to wrap up with some bigger top level and we've alluded to this quite a bit through but you know my backstory on this is uh, you know like for many 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 years i would try and find that magic pill right like that one supplement or that one combination that would just make me faster and help me win races meanwhile all of my friends who couldn't afford this stuff were just riding harder riding longer riding faster and they all got way faster than me kept moving up the ranks and i just constantly sucked and, and then like i've probably spent north of 10 grand over the past three decades just trying stuff right all kinds of supplements and what i should have been doing was just riding more and so like my big question is you know after everything we've just discussed like do we really need any of this stuff that's a very good question and it puts me on the hot seat but uh <laughs> no you don't really need any of this stuff but i think that the academic research is very clear that if you don't do it you're not going to be your best now some people you know just Without even training, they can kick everybody else's butt, but those are freaks and they're rare. If you train, your body does adapt, it does make progress, and you do get better. And everybody's a little different, of course, so some people can uh, become a Tour de France team member, and some of us um, just go back to the couch and sit there and eat potato chips. So there's a wide range of what your body can actually do, and nutritionally, there's a lot you can do to improve your performance. So you may have other problems that are holding you back. It might be mental. It might be actual physical that your muscles are disconnected differently. Tiny uh, difference makes a big difference in uh, the real, real world. That's why you have sprinters that can't run a marathon and marathoners that take forever to run 100 meters. So we're all a little different. And, and that's where the fun begins. And what nutrition and dietary supplements can do is give you the ability to maximize what you can do. We also like to work on, on the mental aspects. A lot of these things we use for your muscles are also helping your brain because if you don't want to, you're not going to. And if you have that drive, you can overcome e- even serious nutritional deficits, uh, but you still can't run out of water, can't run out of electrolyte balance. 
and you can't run out of fuel. Uh, there is no way you can will yourself out of that. You can do a little better with a strong will, but sooner or later, you're not going to perform as well as you could. And somebody that is taking all these things will get past you. Yeah. And I think for most people, if you're riding more than, you know, hour, hour and a half, depending on what your tolerance for it is, you know, a simple sports drink is going to get you through, you know, like I used to the recovery drink is going to help you just be able to do it the next day better. The other stuff, I kind of wonder like the optogen, right? And, and things like that is, I feel like if you're an average rider, right? You know, like the difference that's going to make is probably negligible. Whereas like if you're already up in the top one to 2% of riders, then every little marginal gain you can make through nutrition is probably actually going to make a difference. But, you know, that's just my opinion. I know you guys want to sell the products to everybody. And there's a lot of people that'll take every edge they can get. You're right. Uh, That gets us into adaptogen, so to speak. And and that's what Optogen was back in 2002. And it's still here. Um, It does have effects on the people that are really, really stressing their bodies. And we're not just talking, oh, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. We we mean you, you physically can't go another mile. That's real stress in the body, and that's where adaptogens really work because they fill in all those signals I was talking about earlier. They, they make up what your body is lacking. And it doesn't matter which one the body's lacking. It has a whole, all these adaptogens have a lot of things that are almost hormones and, and almost metabolic intermediates and that are being used by your blood vessels to control circulation so that they can... If you're really stressed out, and that's the key, you have to have some uh, greater than usual stress. And the longer endurance exercises have more stress, the longer they go. So that's where we see it benefit the most. But if you're you know, a sprinter, you're probably not going to get much result from an adaptogen. And I think that's clear in the literature too. With really, really uh, stress, mental and physical, that's where the adaptogens can make a difference. You need to build up those levels of those all kinds of different compounds that they have so that they can integrate with your body's normal systems. And that takes a few weeks, uh, usually four to eight at least. Uh, A lot of the studies in adaptogens that don't work have um, not gone long enough. And I I think also you don't want too much. You don't want too much because then you're starting to dictate to the body instead of instead of adding to it, you're you're overriding it, and you don't want that either in stress. So there is another sweet spot. Do you tend to want to cycle these kinds of things on and off? Um, you can. They will also work if you take a, a, a I don't want to say a lower dose, but pretty much a, a decent dose all the time. <clears throat> I mean, that's what these things have been doing for traditional medicine practices for centuries and that's where they come from and they also work better when you're older so because your signaling is is starting to drop out and go downhill and these things will boost that up a little bit so how much you say stress right like the stress of a long ride but i think a lot of people too are you know just stressed with their daily job right or the stress of life stress of kids stress of this that and the other paying the bills and all that right like does that kind of mental and emotional stress affect the body the same way as like long distance endurance stress? Yeah, it, it does. It does. It, it actually drains your energy because your brain is a little more active than it would be if you were relaxed. It means the brainwave kind of thing going on that takes more energy so that um, 
it does drain your, your, your feelings of energy even more than your actual energy. I mean, your blood glucose isn't changing, but it's, you're, what's changing is your cells being able to utilize and, and burn that glucose for energy, for example. So yes, mental stress also counts. And that's uh, something that's very difficult to, um, what, uh, scientificize, uh, <laughs> to, to coin a word, to, to have it uh, fit into the scientific mold of, of, of research, which is not real world most of the time anyway. But uh, that's where the adaptogens really work. But again, you have to be really stressed. You have to be constantly nervous on edge, like you know, you, somebody uh, slams the door and you like hit the ceiling. Uh, that, that's where they make a difference. If somebody slams the door and you go, who, bleeped, who the bleep did that? Then, then you're, you don't really need an adaptogen. You're already adapted. <laughs> so that's, what they, that's why they're called adaptogens. If you need more, you can get it from these things. It's a, a slow build, but it's a strong build. And once you, I, I've ch uh, published chapters in, in books on uh, scientific books about these things and how to use them. And I did my own uh, statistics on it, showing that most of the studies, um, you, you look at you look at the studies, and the ones that work have uh, they always have more subject numbers. Okay, that's fine. But they also have a longer duration of use. You give them longer, longer time period of use. And they also have more stressful situations. So that's where these things will work. And my, one of my favorite sayings is, okay, you don't think it works? Stop. Stop it. And if it, nothing happens, then you weren't stressed enough for that kind of adaptogen. If you kind of go, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not like, uh, wasn't, what was I? I'm not, wasn't like I was before, then yeah, it's working. Adaptogens aren't, are not stimulus. They don't jazz you up and go, oh man, I can do anything. I can do everything. No, 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 no. They're not caffeine. They will make your body the best it can be. And that's what you expect usually. So you don't really notice it sometimes. But again, if it's working, people notice it. And, and because of uh, cost and other factors, uh, you can cycle it too. If you're if training, if you have an off season, you don't really stress yourself, then you don't need it as much. So you could cycle, but you do need about four to eight weeks to get it to really hit its level where it's working. That's the catch. Well, I appreciate your time. It was a lot. And, uh, you know, I learned some. This is awesome. But I love geeking out on this stuff. So, yeah, thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Tyler. I, I you know, kind of like a wind up toy. I don't it's, it's hard to make me stop when I start talking. So I, I apologize if I blathered on about stuff. But it gets complicated, and once you're into the weeds, then you find those aha moments, and then it all clicks. So I'm hoping I'm doing that for some folks. Yeah, I hope so too, because that's kind of you know my journey was that way, right? You listen to something a little top level, and oh, that was interesting. You dive, dive a little deeper, dig a little deeper, and yeah, now it's man. There's uh, that's about all I listen to now is podcasts and stuff on sports nutrition, fitness, endurance, strength. It's it's, uh, it's a fascinating world. Oh, we're still learning. We're always going to be learning, but uh, it's evolving and ad adapting. I mean, the, the gut training is a whole new thing. I, I think we're going to be focusing on that, too, because um, it, that was a barrier that is now broken. And uh, it we, we helped break that along with a lot of other companies with exercise performance products. So uh, we'll keep we'll keep breaking barriers. That's the fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tyler. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. 
If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.